Well, some pretty amazing stories that we had a chance to hear of uh, God at work. And, you know, sometimes we think that, you know, the, the process of birth, we see it happen so many times that it almost becomes something we expect to happen without a glitch. And yet sometimes God does remarkable things in the lives of people. And, and we get the, the cool opportunity to be a part of that. And so as you remember, Gabe, and the things that they're going through and, and Corey and Amy with the adoption process with their little girl, Tristan, we just ask that you would lift them up. On the screen behind me are some pictures of the children who were dedicated in the first service, and we want to give you a chance to see those before I begin my message. You saw the pictures of Bennett, of Abigail, and of Emily, who were dedicated in the first service. So it's pretty cool that God allows us to be a part of uh, their lives, and we're so honored uh, to be a part of that. As many of you have been praying for one of our high school students, Tyler, he has uh, been uh, battling uh, lymphoma, and we ask you to continue to keep him in our prayers. Uh, They're selling some uh, purple wristbands that look like this, and it just reminds us to pray for him. Um, and so when you see Mike back at the sound booth, I think he'll be there in the next week or two. You can hound him for one of these or two bucks. I think they'll have them for the students at uh, Flipside and C3 as well. So just a way to remind us to be praying for Tyler. Uh, this week is his week off of treatment, and so he gets to enjoy a good week, and then he'll start another round the following week. So please keep uh, Tyler Lehman in your prayers. And one of my favorite movies that I like to watch over and over again, uh, or series of movies that I like to watch over and over again, is the Rocky series. And every time it comes on, you know, they roll it around all the time, Rocky marathons, you know, I'm like, oh, yes, get to watch this again. My wife's like, you want to watch that again? You know, and I'm like, I don't say that to you when you want to watch Princess Bride again, you know, or Pride and Prejudice again, but, you know, let me just enjoy this for the moment, you know, and so... You know, my wife and daughter, they're, they groan about it, and, you know, oh, you've seen it again, they're just punching one another, you know, that's all it is, but, 
you know, it, it's part of my history. I kind of, you know, that series came out when I was in high school and, you know, kind of the, the Rocky theme music and all that's associated with that. And even though I didn't live near Philly or wasn't in PA, it was still a part of our world where I lived, grew up in the Maryland area. And if you remember the story that, uh, you know, he's a, uh, an unknown from the south side of Philly and he fights the world champion and survives 15 rounds. And then the next movie, he fights the world champion again and actually defeats him. Um, you know, Apollo Creed. And then in the third movie, he's now risen to a place of great success. You know, he's moved from his row home on the south side of Philly. Now he's in a suburbs, got a nice uh, fancy house, you know, and, and he's fought a few title contenders and beaten them pretty easily. And, and now he's unveiling the statue of himself and you know, the steps of the art museum. And as he's unveiling his statue of the steps of the art museum, you know, the number one contender, Clubber Lang, also known as Mr. T from the A-Team in the 80s, you know, he shows up on the scene and kind of calls him out, you know, right there on the steps in front of all of his friends and family and, and uh, people that are celebrating him. And so he says, I'm going to fight him. I'm going to fight him. And his, his trainer Mick says, no, you're going to get killed. You're going to get killed. You're not ready. You're not prepared. And he says, I'm ready. I'm prepared. And so you, you see the clips of him preparing and they've got this big ballroom, you know, and there's uh, it's like a circus going on in there where he's supposed to be training. He's doing photo ops and he's doing commercials and he's not really doing hardly any training. And then you see Clubber Lang and he's in obscurity and nobody sees him and nobody knows where he is. And he's training to get in the best shape of his life. And the story goes that when they eventually met in the ring, um, he destroyed Rocky. He humiliated him. He embarrassed him in a devastating loss. And it didn't matter what he looked like on the outside because something was missing on the inside. And because something was missing on the inside, he didn't produce in the end. It gave him a little bit of fame initially, but then he lost all of that as the movie portrayed it. And it's easy for us to become enamored with things that look good on the outside, whether it's people or whether it's companies or whether it's sports teams. It's easy to get enamored with things that look good on the outside. But the reality is, is if there's not something, if there's not someone paying attention to what's going on in the inside, it'll crumble. It'll crumble. You know, historically, a team that doesn't have a lot of flashy sports stars, but they have a lot of guys that will work hard and play together as a team, they will often succeed and go farther than a team that has a lot of superstars. In the NFL, they say offense, which is flashy, which everybody likes to see, wins games, but defense, the hard stuff, the difficult stuff that nobody notices what wins championships. And the truth is, I think we all know this, that if we don't pay attention to the things on the inside, the little things that nobody really sees, we're not going to be effective when it really matters. It's not enough just for you to practice with your team, you've got to pay attention to your sleep and your diet and your disciplines when you aren't at practice and when it's off-season, when nobody is watching you. And being disciplined over a long period of time is going to produce long, effective results. There's a story of two groups that were making their way to the North Pole the first time, and one group became familiar and known as the ones that participate in the 20-mile march. And every day their goal was to do 20 miles. It didn't matter if it was raining, if it didn't matter if it was snow, it didn't matter if it was a blizzard. Their goal was to make 20 miles. They didn't make 20 miles every day, but they made 15, 12, 15, nearly 20. The other group, they only, they only traveled when the weather was nice, when it was perfect ideal conditions. And then they would go as hard and fast as they could. But when the weather got bad and it was a little uncomfortable, a little difficult, guess what? They just stayed in their tents. And if you know the story, you know that the ones that pursued the 20-mile march approach, they got to the North Pole first. The others, they had people die, and they barely made it to the North Pole. And this morning, we're going to talk about what's going on on the inside, what's going on 
on the inside as we continue our series on the Sermon on the Mount. If you have your Bibles, if you would pull them out and turn to Matthew chapter 6. If you don't have a Bible, our guys have some and they'll pass them out for you to follow along with us this morning. Matthew chapter 6. And if you haven't been with us, we've been in this series um, on Jesus' message, his most well-known message called the Sermon on the Mount. And he was preaching this message to a group of religious people. A group of religious people. And it's a little odd because he says the kingdom of heaven is near. That's not odd. But he says before that, he says repent. It seems odd to say to religious people repent. It seems like you would say to people that were irreligious, that didn't care about God, that had gone and made a mess of their lives. You need to turn your life around and repent. But no, that's not who Jesus says it to. He says it to the religious people. You say, why does he say it to the religious people? Because he's saying it to people who had adopted a way of life that was all about what looked good on the outside. It was all about following the rules. It was all about image management. And Jesus said, there's something more that I have for you. There's something more that I have for you. And I don't want you just to do more things. That's not what this is all about. But I want you to trade the way you're living for a way that I'm going to suggest, the way of the kingdom, the way of following and allowing me to be king of your life. That's what I'm going to invite you to do. And so Jesus says, I want you to trade the way you're dealing with anger and conflict for my way. And I want you to trade the way you're dealing with lust and how you view men and women of the opposite sex to my way. And I want you to trade the way you're looking at relationships for my way. And I want you to trade the way you're making promises for my way. And I want you to trade the way you're responding when people take advantage of you for my way. And we've been looking at that over the last number of weeks. And if you haven't been with us, I encourage you to go to our website and you can listen to some of the messages and track with where we've been going. But Jesus takes a different approach in this passage, a different approach. Because up to this point in time, he's been saying, you have heard it said, not it is written, but you've heard it said. This is the oral tradition. This is what they keep hearing. But I say unto you. So he's telling them something different than what they have been hearing in the religious community. And that's what he's been doing all throughout chapter 5. Beginning of chapter 6, he changes direction just slightly. And let's read this through this passage, and then we'll come back and spend some time talking about it. Matthew chapter 6, beginning in verse 1, it says, Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you'll have no reward from your Father in heaven. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets, as hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets, to be honored by others. Truly, I tell you, they've received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you pray, don't be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they've received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you pray, don't keep babbling like the pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. And then jump down to verse 16. And when you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show others they are fasting. Truly I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face, so that it will be obvious to others that you are fasting. Not obvious to others that you are fasting, but only to your Father who is unseen, and your Father who sees what is done in secret 
will reward you. So back to verse 1. What does Jesus say? He says, be careful. Be careful. Kind of an odd caution. Because what he's going to do is he's going to talk about things that religious people do. He's going to talk about giving to people in need. He's going to talk about prayer. He's going to talk about fasting. But he said, you need to be careful when you practice your faith. It's kind of an odd challenge to us because we're almost, we're kind of conditioned when we come to the Bible to think, okay, it's going to tell me I'm supposed to do this and supposed to do this and supposed to do this. And that's not really what Jesus says. There's a sense in which he's not really that concerned with how you practice your faith. He's concerned with why. He's concerned with why. And if there's one thing I hope you walk away this morning, it is why do I do the things I do to live out my faith? Why do I do them? Notice Jesus' warning here. Is there. He says, be careful not to practice your righteousness or your right way of living in front of others. What's your reason? To be seen by them. Now what Jesus is not saying is he's not saying, don't any, let anyone see the way you live out your faith. It needs to be completely in secret. That's not what Jesus is saying. He's saying you need to be careful about your motives. Careful about your motives. And what he goes on to say is, he says, if you do them so others will pat you on the back and say, good job, that's the only reward you're going to get. That's the only reward you're going to get. You know, I, I kind of experience this a little bit on a given Sunday morning because there are some mornings when I speak and you guys see me, I talk to a lot of people and may, some, some weeks no one will comment at all about anything that is said up here this morning. And I wonder... Hmm, was that helpful? Did that make any sense to anybody? Was anybody awake out there? You know, it's kind of dimly lit, so I can't see if you're awake or asleep out there, you know. But, uh, yes, I can. I, I really know it, so uh, I was just saying that. But No, but, uh, you know, it, it's just a reality that when you, when you do things in front of other people, you wonder, was that good? Now, please don't take that as that I need to hear that, because that's an issue with me and God. That's my issue with God, not yours. But this is an example for me of what these kinds of things look like. And we're going to talk about three things this morning. Now remember, God's not saying you should be doing each of these things. I think they're all good and they're all meaningful. He's saying, how do you do what, or why do you do what you do? Why? Why? Do I do this for the applause of others? For the praise of others? Because if that's my motivation and I get that and I hear that from a few people... God says, that's the only thing you're going to get. He goes on to say, but if you do this for me, then you'll receive a reward from heaven. Now, I don't really know what that looks like. Honestly, I don't. Um, but I know this. I know that God is the creator of all and that God is a good and loving father and that God always does what's best, and so I'm going to trust that it's going to be something good. It's going to be something good. You know, it's so, it's so um, counter to our thinking to re be rewarded not based on our accomplishments, but rewarded based on why we do what we do. It just doesn't register in our brains. I mean, imagine if you went into work and they're doing performance reviews for last year and the boss says to you, you know, um, we're not going to do, we're not going to give you a bonus based on how close you got to hitting your goals and objectives for the past year. That's not how we're going to give anybody a bonus this year. 
We're going to give everybody a bonus based on how much they enjoy their job, how pleasant they are to be around, how great of an employee. And some of you are thinking, that would be sweet. You know, there would be some people that would get sick stuff and they would get nothing because they're horrible employees, even though they accomplish incredible things, you know. Imagine what that would be like. But that's literally what Jesus is saying, you know. He's saying the ones that are rewarded are the ones that do the things they do for the right reasons, not because other people are going to see them. Let's take a look at what these things are. The first one is giving to the needy. Giving to the needy was a foundational pillar of the Old Testament culture of the Jewish faith. Uh, They lived in agrarian society. They were farmers. Um, If their crops didn't come in, they had to take care of one another. Deuteronomy 15.11 from the Old Testament law says, There will always be poor people in the land. I command you to be open-handed towards your fellow Israelites who are poor and needy in the land. And so this was something that they often did. And, And some of the ways that they would do it is if they saw someone who was a beggar who physically couldn't work because of a disease or illness or injury, they would give to them. Uh, another way that this would happen is they would come to the temple, and as they walked in the temple, there was a, usually a big collection bowl of some kind, and they would drop their gifts into that bowl. And you may remember the story that talked about in the, Old Test- or in the, in the Gospels where Jesus talked about the woman who could only give one or two coins, but she gave it joyfully, and she gave all that she had. Versus the religious leaders who came in and dropped their coins, plink, 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 plink. And Jesus says, they have no reward. They have no reward. And so what Jesus is talking about is he's talking about the way that you give. And he goes on in verse 2 of Matthew chapter 6. He said, "Uh, don't announce it. Don't toot your own horn as the hypocrites. And he's going to use this word over and over again. A hypocrite came from the theater culture of that day. Um, In the city where Jesus grew up, the city of Nazareth, there was a large theater Um, likely that Jesus and his father may be built. There was also theaters in Jericho and Samaria. And actors were called hypocrites in those days because they put on different masks to represent different characters, different figures. Jesus said these people that announce what they have done, they're putting on a mask. They're they're basically a phony. And look, why do they do it? To be honored by others. To be honored by others. Now, again, what Jesus is not saying is he's not saying do a, do a full surveillance sweep, ensure that nobody is within sight lines and nobody knows, okay, now I can give. Nobody knows, nobody can see. Not what he's saying. But he's talking about our heart and our motive to give. You know, some of you in the room here this morning, you are gifted in giving. You say, what does that mean? What does that mean? You limit your lifestyle so that you can have resources to bless other people, and you do it over and over and over and over and over again. Most people don't even know. Most people don't even know. But, but Jesus says this should be true of all of us. True of all of us. And if you struggle in this area, if you struggle in when you give, announcing it, Jesus says, I have a suggestion for you. This is a way you can repent. Stop doing what you're doing and do something. Next time you give to someone in need, look at the next verse. Um, don't tell anybody. Don't tell anybody. Ask yourself this question. When was the last time I did something for someone else? I gave money, I helped people out, and I didn't tell anybody about it. 
Now, some of you, you live that way all the time. You do. You do. It's the way God has gifted you and wired you, and you do it all the time. But for most of us, it doesn't come that natural. And so what Jesus is saying, he's saying, you need to examine your heart and your motive. Why do you do this? And if you're struggling with your motive, here's a way for you to do something about it. Give and don't tell anyone. You say, John, uh, should, should I be giving to people in need? I think you should. I think that should be true of all of us as Christ followers. Not just to contribute to the local church so God can do what he wants to do here, but you know, to people in need. You know, I have a lot of people that say to me, you know, what are we going to do with the new building? We've got all this space. And one of the things that I say to people all the time is, what, what has God called us to do as a church? He's called us to introduce them to the love that God has for them and to show that love to others. And so we're asking ourselves a question, how can we do that? How can we use this building not to meet our own needs, but so that we can serve this community, so that we can introduce people to the message of Jesus? I was talking to a group of pastors recently in this one church in the, in the Denver area. They serve 200 people breakfast once a month, and um, they serve it out of a few classrooms in the basement of a building. And I'm thinking, we have a commercial kitchen and a full-size gymnasium that God just put in our laps. How does God want us to use that? Maybe it's to serve people in need. The second one is one that I think we're all familiar with, and that's prayer. That's prayer. Uh, Jesus, again, is talking about why do you pray? Why do you pray? Look what he says in in verse 5. Let's go to verse 5. When you pray, don't be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the streets to be seen by others. There's that phrase again, to be seen by others. Why do they do it? What's he talking about here? Well, in the Jewish culture, prayer was a, a regular thing that would happen. Um, they would pray usually three times a day. You might recall the story of, uh, of a man in the Old Testament by the name of Daniel. Um, he was known for praying three times a day in a pagan country that said you can't pray to anyone except the ruler of the country, and he was thrown into the lion's den because of that. And so prayer was a common part of their way of life, and sometimes they would be by themselves, and so they would just stop and pray, and other times they might be in a public setting and they would pray. But it's obvious when you read this passage um, that they like to be heard and they like to be recognized when they pray. Have you ever noticed that some people have a different praying voice than they do a talking voice? You may ever notice that, you know. When they pray, their voice gets a little deeper and slower, you know, and they talk to God, you know, or their voice gets a little softer and lighter when they talk to God, you know. I'm not sure if that's what he's talking about. Or he's talking about individuals that just want to be seen and recognized by people because of what they do. But regardless, it's not not what you do, it's why you do it. Why you do it. Look what he goes on to suggest in verse 6. He said, if this is a struggle for you, he said, I want to offer this suggestion for you. Go someplace where nobody knows and talk to God. A room, close a door, pray to your Father who is unseen. Now again, Jesus is not saying this is the only way to pray. But he's saying if you struggle in this area, in an area that is supposed to be a conversation with you and God, and it becomes all about how I talk to God, then maybe you need to make it private with just you and God. 
And he said, your father will reward you. He then in this section, he goes on to add one more perspective. Look what he says in verse 7. He says, um, some of you, when you pray, don't, be, don't keep on or be babbling like the pagans. They think they'll be heard because of many words. We were at one church service a while back visiting some relatives, and uh, the prayer seemed to be pretty long. And I realized that one of my family members afterwards had timed the prayer, and it was 10 minutes long in the middle of the service. And someone else had looked up and around, and they were pretty sure half the room was sleeping by the time the guy got done with that prayer. You know, I mean, Jesus is saying here, he's saying, you don't have to use a lot of words. You don't have to use a lot of words. But I, I think what he, the point is, be thoughtful when you talk to God. Don't just ramble on endlessly, but be thoughtful when you talk to God. I want to ask you, but how many of you have ever sat down to a meal and started praying you're pr- you're in, your, in your prayer, you're praying for food and there's no food, you know, at that setting, you know? Or you're thanking God for a nice day and it's, you know, a blizzard outside, you know, or it's thunder and lightning, you know? You, oh, maybe that wasn't such a good thing to... You know, I, I think this is what he's getting at, where our, our prayers are without thought and they're without purpose and God's... Our Father that just says, will you come and talk to me? And just tell me what's on your heart. Tell me what you're going through. As we heard these couples' story, you, you know, we, we can't imagine if you've never been through what they have been through. You know, to have a mom and a dad expecting to have this baby arrive and be told the day you're supposed to bring him home, he's not coming to your house. Or to be expecting to take him home from the hospital and we've got to rush him to Hershey. You know, you find yourselves in those situations where we're desperate and we cry out to God, but God says, I want you to talk to me simply, without a lot of words, anytime that you need to. Well, he goes on then to talk to us about how to pray, and we're going to spend the next two weeks looking at the Lord's Prayer and um, looking at what Jesus has to say about how to pray, and then we're going to spend some time doing that together over the next two weeks. One final thing that he talks about. Um, in verse 16, and that's the subject of fasting. Now, for most of you, when you think about this concept of fasting, the only thing that you know about fasting is when the doctor says, don't eat anything for 12 hours before you come into what? Give some blood, right? That's what they tell us to do. That's about the only thing you know about fasting. But fasting was a part of the Old Testament culture. It was a part of the Jewish faith. There would be seasons of time where they would go without food. You say, why would they do that? so that they would recognize, how number one, how reliant they are on food, and number two, to turn to God when things were really important in their lives. A couple of examples in the Bible where it talks about, there was the story of Daniel that I mentioned, when he and his buddies, for ten days, I believe, they said, we're only going to eat a certain kind of food, and we're not going to eat all these other things. There was a woman in the Old Testament by the name of Esther when her the Jewish people were at a moment of crisis and there was a possibility that they were going to be wiped out completely a genocide and she called all the people to to fast and not eat for 3 days to pray that God would do something in their situation and so there's examples of these things happening over and over again where we say I'm going to say no to my to the physical needs so that I can be attentive to what God wants to do in my heart and my life again it says here, when you fast, so it's assuming this was part of their religious culture. Is God calling you to, to, to fast? Well, that's between you and him. Maybe he is, maybe he will do that for something that's going on in your life, to go without food for a meal for a, a certain period of time or a whole day or maybe 
an extended period of time. But what was going on in this in this passage? He says, when you fast, don't look as somber as the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces to show that they're fasting. Now, I'm not really sure what they disfigure their faces are. The only thing I can think of is it's, it's kind of like maybe elementary school boys or maybe middle and high school boys who just they come in and they're like starving and they're going to die if they don't have some food. And mom, I got to have some food. And, you know, it's kind of happens every day for some of your households, you know. Um, maybe that's what it's like, you know, they haven't, they think they're going to die if they don't get food. But I think the next verse gives us a little bit of clue on what that might be. Look at the next verse. He says, but when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face. That's basically what he says. And, and I think what Jesus is saying is saying, don't act like anything is different. What he says in verse 18, he says this, he says, so that it will not be obvious to others you are fasting. Again, this is not about other people to look at you and say, oh, I can't believe you're doing that. How in the world could you do that? You know, I could never go without one meal, let alone two meals. And you do that every single week. Oh, you're an amazing person. You know, that's not what Jesus says. That's not what this is all about. It's not what it's all about. The only person who should see is your father who is in heaven, who sees what is done in secret. You see, the issue here is not necessarily for you to start giving to the poor, although that's a good thing, or not necessarily for you to pray more, that's a good thing, or for you to fast, that's a good thing to do. But the issue is to ask yourself, why do I do the things that I do? Why do I do the things that I do? And too often in the church community and faith settings, we often talk about what we're supposed to do. You should be doing this and this and this and this. And we don't spend as much time, which Jesus seemed to spend more time, talking about why do we do it. God says, when you give, why do you give? God says, when you serve, why do you serve? God says, when you spend time reading the Bible and praying, why, why do you do that? When you show up in here on Sunday morning, when you could have slept in, why did you do that? Why did you do those things? And part of what my challenge for you this morning is for you to ask yourself some really hard questions about why do I do that? Why do I do it? Do I do it simply because my parents have told me to do it and I really don't have a choice? Do I do it because I think it will impress someone else? Do I do it because, well, that's what I've always been told I should do? I'm not sure that those are the reasons that God wants us to be doing all of those things. You know, I'm pretty convinced that you have to really love other people's children to hold them in your arms when they're crying for an hour and change their poopy diapers, you know. You have to really, we do that with our own kids, and some of you even struggle with that, but to do that with somebody else, you have to really love those children and love doing that. And one of the things we want to see happen here at CCC is we want to be people and we want to be followers of Jesus who do the things that, we do because we love to do them and because we love God. And this is our way of saying thank you to Him for all He's done for us. Not because we're obligated, not because it's a have to, but it's because I want to. 
I want to do this. I want to serve. I want to give. I want to share. I want to be involved in the lives of others. I want to make sacrifices. Because not only does it give me incredible joy and incredible delight, but it's an amazing opportunity for me to say thank you to a God who loved me, who created me, who made me in His image, and cared so much about me that He was willing to give His one and only Son so that I could have a relationship with Him forever. Paul talked about this in the New Testament in the book of 1 Corinthians. Listen to these couple of verses. He says, if you're articulate, spiritual, you speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but you don't show love. You're just like a loud gong or a clanging cymbal. If you have the gift of prophecy and you can understand deep and mysterious things about the Scriptures, and if you have this amazing faith that trusts God for significant things that could even move mountains, but if you don't have love, it's pointless. It's nothing. If you are a generous generous person and you care about others and you give to people in need and you even give your body over to science so when you die it can be used to benefit other people, but you don't have love. You don't have anything. You don't have anything. And too often our focus has been on what we are supposed to do instead of why do I do the things that I do? Why do I do the things that I do? I'm pretty convinced that Jesus is not real thrilled with Christ followers who just do a lot of things because they feel obligated to do them. You might be thinking, John, if that's, that's where I'm at, what am I supposed to do? Just quit? Just drop out? I don't think that's what God wants you to do. I think He wants you to spend some time examining your own heart And saying, why do I do that? What is it that God has done for me that motivates me to do those things? Because that's what we have to come back to over and over and over again. Would you join me in prayer as we close? God, it's real easy for us to get impressed with things that look good on the outside. from buildings to programs to communicators um, to people who are incredibly generous. But God, you really push us hard to look at our hearts and to really wrestle with our motive for doing all of these things, God. And God, if it can't be because of our sense of being overwhelmed with your love and your devotion and your commitment and sacrifice to us, it's probably pretty pointless, God. And that may seem a little harsh because people are making sacrifices and they are making effort. And God, but the thing that you care most about is our hearts. God, you want 
people that love you, that want a relationship with you, and will put that relationship above everything else, and will give and serve and share their lives, Lord, because of their love and devotion to you. God, I pray for each of us that we would be willing to ask ourselves some very hard questions. And when faced with those questions, God, that it might take us back to our relationship with you and back to exploring what you want the most from us. And that's a heart that is fully devoted and deeply in love with you. In your name we pray. Amen.